All right, everyone, let's get the show started. Welcome to our DevOps office hours. It's August 31st, 2022. My name's Eric Osterman, and I'll be leading the conversation. I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse, and we're a DevOps accelerator, which means that we help companies own their infrastructure in record time by building it with your team, all the while showing them the ropes. So if that sounds interesting, head over to cloudposse.com slash quiz to book an interview uh, with me directly, and we'll understand your situation and propose a solution on how we would go address that. For those of you new to the call, the format is very informal. My goal is to get your questions answered, so feel free to unmute yourself at any time if you'd like to jump in and participate. If you're tuning in from our YouTube channel or podcast, you can register for these live sessions by heading over to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, that's cloudposse.com slash office hours. We host these calls every week. Our call today is recorded. We'll automatically post a recording of our session uh, to our YouTube channel. So if you enjoy the content and want to support what we're working on over here, please hit those like and subscribe buttons. So with that said, I'm already into announcements. One step ahead of the game. So uh, I don't have many announcements today as I'm running a little bit behind. The uh, top three announcements that came by my inbox today. One is if you are... Uh, you know, regular on Stack Overflow, you can now start to ask questions on Stack Overflow, uh, tag Cloud Posse, and we'll be notified about that and can answer your questions there as well. Also, if you see any questions on Stack Overflow, feel free to, uh, that are specifically related to Cloud Posse's um, Terraform modules and ecosystem, feel free to tag Cloud Posse on those as well. So there you can see uh, we have 18 questions so far. Uh, tagged. Any questions on that before I move on? All right. Then um, next one was a small announcement, um, an enhancement to CloudFront and how you can control access to S3 buckets using now uh, origin access control uh, policies that can restrict it to a specific distribution. Um, previously, I believe you could only uh, uh, do it using origin access identity, which was a little bit more limited and you couldn't restrict it to down to the distribution. So um, consideration there. Any questions on that before we move on? And the last announcement, it's not really a new announcement for regulars on the show. Uh, we've been following the, the releases of uh, Terraform 1.3 alphas Beta 1 just dropped. That means that 1.3 is imminent. I would expect it to come out in the next couple of weeks in that case. The main thing here is the optional uh, attributes uh, for objects, which we've been wanting for a long time, which concludes the experiment that was running uh, previously. So if you were previously using the experiment, you're going to have to um, uh, uh, turn that one off and switch to the, the new convention of uh, using the optional um, I don't know, what would you call that? Looks like a function, but not a function um, to uh, specify if it's optional or not. Constraint. All right. Any questions on that? Other uh, highlights of 1.3 uh, that are worth uh, pointing out? Oh, that's nice. Terraform format can now be used to specify a specific path without changing directory. Yeah, Microsoft is phasing out. Adol, so they are removing that one. Uh, they are phasing out what? Adol, like Azure Directory. Oh, oh yeah. Azure. Okay, for authentication. Okay, that was not something I was aware of. So yeah, they are using graph, other graph version. Yeah, Microsoft announced it like maybe one year ago that it will phase out soon. Okay. So Azure is following that practice. Good call. <clears throat> all right. So that's all that I had a chance to collate for today's office hours in terms of announcements. Anybody else have something uh, that's worthy of mentioning? Vlad, you always have something good. Uh, the, the UAE breed launched. I haven't tried to use oh. it, but it launched. Oh, it's officially launched. Okay, cool. Um, that's about it. Like there was the uh, Fargate incident last week, just after all. Yeah, I saw yeah. your 40, 40 tweet thread on that. 
Yeah, or was people <laughs> really blew that out of proportion. It was, in my view, a boring incident, but again, I have quite a lot of experience. And yeah, that's about it. So what's I, the no other notes that comes to mind. What's the TLDR on the ECS incident? It wasn't ECS, it was Fargate. So it was both, uh, let me... Oh, so it affected both EKS and ECS Fargate. Yeah, so the servers behind serverless got cranky, and <laughs> thus uh, there were some issues. There's, I don't remember the timeline. Basically, uh, you couldn't launch new uh, Fargate containers. The requests were failing, but they were actually succeeding after a little while, and that happened for like eight hours or something. Mm. AWS reports 50 to 70% of requests actually succeeding, and that's in line with what I experienced. Like, yeah, stuff was failing, but it was ultimately going through. Running containers were super fine. After about eight hours, they didn't manage to fix it. So they stopped all new launches, which, yeah, that's a bit dramatic. Wow. <laughs> but wow. obviously, it was a big problem. They couldn't fix it uh, otherwise. So they stopped all new launches. Again, running containers were totally fine. Mm-hmm. And then they fixed it and slowly brought it back up. It, I don't, I go into this in the Twitter thread, but I don't see it as that big of a outage because it was very obvious from the very first second that, oh, only new containers are affected. So mm. we're just going to scale to the maximum and stop scaling down. Mm. And you had like eight hours available to do this. Mm which made this a non-event. Yeah, it's a a non-event unless you run a business that relies on dynamically being able to scale your workloads up and down throughout the day as you're like processing ETL pipelines and that kind of thing. It doesn't seem like that would be great. Yeah. For all my customers, we just block scaling, scale the high and it was a non-event is mean of me no like it, it was still an incident but it wasn't that dramatic it was night not nice <laughs> for it is soon turning five like uh, at reinvent it's gonna be five years old so and as far as i remember this is like the first big fargate incident so mm-hmm. yay have they come out with the root cause or i haven't seen any public documents on that Any other announcements uh, from anyone else? Um, AWS, Terraform, GitHub Actions related? I, I saw a couple of small things. Um, I saw that uh, Memcached, um, they announced that that's now HIPAA eligible. That wasn't HIPAA eligible for a while. I have no idea, or forever, obviously, but I don't know what took them so long with that one. And then uh, the second one I noticed is that they now have uh, an SNS topic um, you can subscribe to within Security Hub that will give you all the Security Hub announcements and new features that they launch. Hmm. Um, So you can kind of be programmatically notified of anything that they're changing within Security Hub, which I thought was pretty pretty good given that they, they do some things pretty rapidly there sometimes and you're always like oh i didn't know that that existed but now they'll now they'll shoot that off to an sns topic for you and then you can obviously mm. do whatever you want there send it to slack send it different places send it to email text yourself <laughs> you know? i wonder if they'll expand that to other product offerings and kind of have a standard way of distributing disseminating that uh, those updates yeah that would be interesting all right well, uh, let's move into Q&A then. Um, I think we have two uh, questions teed up. Uh, one is by Jonas Steinberg. Um, Jonas, I don't know if you were able to make the call today, but I did see your question there. And the the, uh, the question is, if you are in a kind of long-lived AWS organization and uh, resources are managed within the structure's code, but they're sprawled all across the organization in different repositories. How do you retroactively go about introducing tagging conventions? Um, and what would the process for that look like? 
So I think it's a fair question. It's one that we at Cloud Posse basically never deal with because everything we do is based on um, using Terraform null label. So all of our resources are uh, consistently tagged by convention automatically, but that's not a retroactive solution. That's not, that, that's saying go and refactor and update all your modules to use uh, Terraform null label. And that's not always a reasonable answer. So some of the suggestions that were brought up, one specifically was uh, that there's a tool uh, created specifically for this, which was um, TerraTag, which will you know, run through every resource it finds and, and uh, modify the HCL to add tags. I guess it's not worse than what you had without it. I just, you know, I just can't stand manually having all these tag attributes all over the place with hard-coded values. It doesn't seem like the long-term best solution, but hey, it checks the box and it gets you there. Other folks recommended using um, default tags within um, the Terraform providers. Uh, that's not a bad idea, I thought. Um, is, there, is there a way to uh, create a uh, SCP or a policy that uh, denies new resources from getting created without the appropriate tags? Yeah. Yep. So that would probably be what uh, I, I would probably take a uh, three three phased approach. Probably phase one, start. Oh, phase one is communication. Start getting people in the company to trying to tag these things. Phase two is a brute force. We're tagging everything uh, with TerraTag. Phase three is implementing policy enforcement that anything new uh, can't uh, progress without you know having the appropriate tags. Hey, can I throw something in there, Eric? Yeah, uh, go for it. Give some thought to what the ta what tags you need. You know, depending on the platform that you're using to yeah. surface this stuff, and depending on your architecture, um, you really want to get that taxonomy nailed down to the extent you can um, in a way that's flexible and will grow in the future before you start putting tags on stuff. Tags for all. Right, and, and the consistency. Also, um, <laughs> it takes some time to figure out what that convention should be. Uh, so uh, maybe try it first and let it burn in for a little while before making it canon law. Yeah, one of, the, one of the other things I would add to that, especially in an environment where the IEC is, is sprawled everywhere, is a tag uh, that indicates like, what module, uh, et cetera, created the resources that uh, are out there. That way, if you ever need to modify them, you can track down like how it got there in the first place pretty easily, especially like yeah. when it's in a decentralized model. Yeah, that's one thing that's been really uh, on my mind for a while. I wanted to implement an introspection module for Terraform. Um, I forget where the conversation is, but the idea is that uh, you can, uh, actually we'd probably be adding it to null label at some point, but where you can then automatically pass through metadata uh, of where th that code was provisioned from. So, you know, inspecting the uh, git config uh, will give you a lot of that information uh, from hey, clone modules. Eric, I can tell you why that doesn't work. <laughs> I've been down that path. Well, to what extent? So, um, well, I mean, yeah, maybe it does in your case, yeah. but but there is there is a gotcha in there, especially if you're using a monorepo, which maybe mm -hmm. maybe you're not. But what like so one of the things I don't see uh, working is trying to use commit shaws, for example. Um, it, that that gets complicated pretty yeah. quickly because okay. things change all the time. So, but tagging the re repository and the module, I don't see that as being controversial or difficult. Well. So you're talking about when you do like a, a Git or a GitHub reference to the module source and it, it clones it into your config, is that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, in that case, it's, okay. So if you're using a module reference, you're saying that you don't then get the same information. However, there's a better file. Uh, I forget what the metadata file is, but Terraform itself, when you do a Terraform init, has a JSON file that you oh, can okay. inspect in Terraform natively, and that's what the that's as far as I got when I was looking okay. down. I can, I can see yeah. what I. Yeah, we uh, we tried to implement um, 
reflection like that. And, and we were going about, we thought we were really clever, like using the Git provider and, and looking at that. But uh, it turns out Terraform does some weird stuff if you have multiple uh, modules in the same repo. Mm. Hey, I ran into an issue, uh, or not ran into, but I got to the point where I decided that I needed to tag uh, our company services with one, you know, with a with a tag, so that I could distinguish them from like all the, you know, like the data dogs and all the security stuff and the Kubernetes based stuff. That can be very nice in your graphs if you want to break those things out and logs too. We do that for logs. Just having done in in a filter in an incoming filter, but that's something to think about. We just slap a brace tag on all of our stuff, and then we can just turn off all the infrastructure stuff and give devs an app only view. Yeah, sorry, I was uh, I was not in focus mentally there, uh, Eric. <laughs> here was the introspection example that we did here. Um, so just using a JSON uh, decode on this file, you yep. can then extract um, a bunch of information, including the module and version. And since that file is uh, created by Terraform init, it exists before the lifecycle of your plan and apply, and therefore the strategy works. I use that to set an SSM parameter in each environment for the last version. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Just wrote a little info module for that. Um, Eric, can you repeat what you're trying to do for your application? Yeah, yeah, it's really simple. I just uh, added a tag to identify our stuff versus like the infrastructure stuff so I can give the devs an app-only view. Mm -hmm. You know, we do that in logs and Datadog and incoming filters, uh, though, you know, I'm, I'm trying to move that to tag-based. Yeah, we use tags. Uh, we use a, a team and service are the two tags we use for that. Um, and then service that could technically comprise multiple apps, I believe. All right, anyone else have any more thoughts on um, tagging? Oh my God, is there any more satisfying activity? <laughs> Once it's all tagged, it's pretty satisfying. Mm -hmm. You can finally see. Well, yeah, that's across. what I mean. Getting it yeah. tagged is like, ah. You can face yeah. your, your financial people with confidence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Finally, that question you dreaded, you can actually answer. And, and it, the tagging isn't limited at just AWS resources. It extends all the way into the things inside of your Kubernetes clusters, uh, for example, um, or ECS clusters. And, and within Datadog, if you're using Datadog. Right, yeah. Which can come back to bite you if you're trying to debug it and you don't realize until maybe an hour is generous later that it's set in Datadog, not in any of your code that does absolutely everything else. <laughs> Something to be aware of. Sounds like a hard lesson learned. Actually, you'll like this because what I did was I set the host filter in the integration. I've been thinking about your new integration, checking out your Datadog integration module. But I set the host filter to Datadog true. And then I set the host tags to Datadog true. And I'm having conversations about why the hell are all of our hosts showing up in Datadog? So mm. yeah, love that. All right, next question. Uh, similar to what was brought up, I think in a previous uh, week's office hours was just like, how do you get started with Atmos and Cloud Posse components? Uh, Omar, Sen, I know you're uh, engaging in a new project and you're looking to get started on that. If you've been following Cloud Posse for some time, uh, you, you might be confused because uh, sub, sometime around two years ago, we switched from uh, one pattern to another pattern. Uh, previously, we were using um, like one Docker image per environment and we were just using pure uh, Terraform CLI commands and environment variables. Um, we learned that that pattern did not work very well in the long run and scale very well because, well, you get this sprawl of environment variables just everywhere. And the problem with environment variables is they're hard to enforce that, you know, they have been set or haven't been set and where were they set and 
uh, validating them and so forth. So uh, we rethought our entire strategy a couple of years ago and we moved to this new strategy of stack configurations. So, uh, oops. So if, uh, you go to docs.cloudposse.com. We do have some, uh, if you spell it, right? Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So we do have uh, some tutorials here, but I'll be honest that these are based, um, uh, th these are a year out of date and haven't yet been fully uh, updated, yet haven't been updated to work. Um, one of the examples we use uh, relies on a weather API and that weather API has gone away. So one of the hard parts about doing examples is always doing something that's not too contrived, but also not so advanced that you need to be an AWS expert to get up and running. So we have two, two, we have, uh, two uh, tutorials here, one getting started with Atmos, uh, which is this configuration uh, management tool we built that's designed to manage complex uh, uh, configurations for Terraform, but also Helm file and eventually other tools as well. Uh, Atmos combines concepts of like a task runner with uh, concepts of, well, well, other wrapper tools like uh, TerraGround, TerraMate, um, TerraSpace uh, that exists out there. So Atmos is uh, our way of um, keeping your configurations incredibly dry. Um, I'll show you an example of what that looks like. And then uh, Geodesic is enhancement. So Geodesic is designed to uh, not be opinionated uh, for like what tools you run or whatnot. The idea is you need a shell, you need a toolbox image that your developers use for a consistent developer experience when working with infrastructure code or your tool chain, Geodesic is one way of doing that. You don't have to use our image, um, but it's a great way to start. So those two projects are Cloud Posse Geodesic and GitHub.com Cloud Posse Atmos. So I wanna try and paint a picture at least for those who are looking at this because that's the best I can do right now. Uh, most of our documentation is still, um, in our own private confluence and not uh, public. So Atmos is this tool. It is a Terraform wrapper technically. Um, Atmos was designed to um, take a complex YAML configuration and through levels of inheritance, create one configuration, write a TFVAR file, and then call Terraform. This means that when you use Atmos, you're truly using vanilla Terraform and a tool to help you generate your variable files. And that's the extent of it. Here's what that enables us to do at Cloud Posse. So, and if you're just looking, one of the common questions is how do we organize our infrastructure and what's the Cloud Posse way? So we have two concepts. We have this concept of components, which are your Terraform root modules. And we have this concept of stacks. Stacks are your configuration. Most companies that do Terraform combine configuration with Terraform code. I mean, technically HCL and Terraform code was designed to be configuration. It's the configuration of your infrastructure. The thing is it's evolved and it's evolved to be parameterized and have uh, variations and call modules and so forth. So we decided treat Terraform code as Terraform as, as business logic and treat configuration separate. All right, so what does that look like then? Well, under the hood, your, your company, you're going to create a repository. Um, we recommend a monorepo. That monorepo should have a folder called components. And underneath components, create a folder for every tool that you're using, because you might have multiple top level tools like Packer being one or Helm file being another. So our convention is under the components, put uh, create one folder for Terraform, one for Helm file, one for Packer. All right, mm -hmm. going into Terraform here, we want to now create a root module for what we want to deploy. This is the building blocks of your infrastructure. What we always see companies do, but isn't our recommendation, is they'll create a heavy root module that combines things like it'll have the VPC, it'll have your EKS cluster, it'll have your ECR repo, it'll have um, maybe uh, your RDS database all in one module. That is one way you can do things, but now that is only, that's one complex pattern with a lot of Terraform code with a big blast radius. So we don't do it that way. What we do is we create a lot smaller root modules and our root modules uh, that you can see right in front of you here 
demonstrate that. So we'll create a root module for ECR, a root module for EKS, a root module for WAF and so forth. And guess what? We give away all of our commercial root modules also as open source, those are free. Those are under this repo called Terraform AWS Components. We keep these updated uh, these days. We didn't used to, uh, but now we are updating it and we're using this as our origin for all of our engagements. So this is a nice process to keep them up to date. Now, these root modules uh, have been examples on their usage. And if I jump into cluster here, you'll see a sample YAML configuration or how it's invoked. So how do we manage all those YAML configurations and how do we keep environments dry? Because one thing you'll notice when I look over here is this isn't mostly a flat directory structure. It doesn't convey your architecture because architecture is configuration. So we jump over here to InfraLive, we look at your stacks and your stacks are broken down into three different conventions. One convention is what we call a catalog, which is like a library of reusable configurations. Mixins, which are also a library of reusable configurations, but are designed to be imported into other like catalogs or other stacks. I'll show you an example. And then your actual stacks. Now stacks, is an incredibly overloaded word. That means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For us, a stack is the collection of all the root modules that have been invoked for a given stage. For us, a stage is what many people call an environment. And that stage, we by convention restrict to an account. So we'll never have two stages in one account by convention. So you'll have one Amazon account, for example, for staging, one Amazon account for dev, one Amazon account for production, and so forth. So the other thing to think about is how do you organize your infrastructure when you have this repository? Well, Amazon's made this real easy. Amazon has this concept of an organization, which is like your top level root payer account. And then that organization has organizational units, and those organizational units have um, accounts and those accounts have regions and those regions have resources. So that's how we organize it by convention again. It's not an enforcement. It's just, this is just a recommendation for how you might want to configure or organize your configurations. So here I show you what that looks like. Here we have an organization is called CP Live. Yours would be called something different. Here we have two organizational units, one called core and one called plat. Plat represents the platform organizational unit. You might use a different convention, no sweat. This is what we've uh, kind of settled on. Then um, you, in there, you'll have a folder representing each of your account stages. One of those stages might be staging. And then you have everything broken down by region because that's the next level of uh, demarcation within Amazon. And then regions have resources. So here you can see by convention, everything we do is multi-region. We we disambiguate between Amazon's global region and regional resources. So the things like IAM and Route 53 that are global that don't make sense to, to uh, couple with a region and then things that are uh, tied to some resources in a region. So here's what that looks like in the end. You know, I, we have this YAML configuration and you can see that because it's YAML, it's very easy to just um, come up with your own DSL, your own convention, that's what we did. We have this concept of imports and we import our configurations, uh, one catalog entry after the next. All of these are just layering and importing them. And then we override our settings down here below. So Omar, in, in planning on how you're gonna start uh, rolling these things out, the first thing I would do is start by setting up your uh, infrastructure repository scaffolding and representing it in something like this. And then the next thing you're gonna to wanna to do is decide on what are all the pieces that comprise your infrastructure. So you're gonna to wanna to have something to manage accounts. You're gonna to wanna to have something to manage your VPCs. You wanna to, to have something to manage maybe your ECS or EKS clusters. So that's where you go into your catalog. And your catalog is where you start building up this library of all your reusable configurations. So a baseline configuration for ECR, for example and a baseline configuration for your VPC, for example. Now, some of these baseline configurations are what you can pull from our AWS components. And when you look at the readme, there'll be an example usage here. I can't promise it's gonna be fully up to date and have every option exposed, but you get the gist of it. 
And uh, once you have your catalog in place, and you're, then you can start you know, putting those stacks together. And um, then you use Atmos. Atmos is the tool that will read that YAML configuration and generate your TFR files and call Terraform. And that's the pattern. Uh, have you heard TerraSpace? Yeah. Yeah, definitely heard Terra, TerraSpace, TerraMate, Terra, Terra Grunt. There's tons yeah. of them now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, TerraSpace is another nice solution out there. You know, it it I think TerraSpace probably appeals especially to any shops that do a lot of uh, Rails development today because TerraSpace is a, a framework written in Rails. Um, yeah. TerraSpace has uh, has a very nice onboarding experience to create the, and generate a new project. Now you're going to find a lot of these tools out there, and those tools can probably help you achieve similar things uh, that we do. The biggest gap between those tools and what we have is that we have this holistic solution. So what we are doing is, hey, we're giving you a tool to manage this complex configuration. It's what we use ourselves every single day in dog food. But mm -hmm. then we also provide this insanely large library of all of our uh, components here that are exactly what we use in our customer engagements themselves and that themselves leverage all of our other modules. So you could probably come up with something similar in TerraSpace, leveraging some of our modules and so forth. But, but uh, yeah, it isn't the solution that we are investing in. Hello. Hi. Hi. So uh, yeah, any more questions? Yeah. First, first of all, I would like to excuse uh, or excuse myself for last time when there was a huge audio issue when you guys said, oh, oh this, oh my God. <laughs> no worries. Now, now it seems fine. Can you, <laughs> now it yeah. seems fine. No, no issues today. Okay. Um, I wanted to say, so you said like monorepo. So you, you would say you would recommend like all the infrastructure for some organization, some you know, uh, yeah, organization to to have in one repository, like like not, like not, this. Not, uh, not really, actually. Um, oh, okay. it's, yeah, yeah. So I recently answered a question in the general channel on SweetOps uh, addressing this fact. Here's the thing. Okay, so first, uh, standard disclaimers. You know, what works for one organization doesn't work for another organization. Your mileage may vary, but the gist of it is this: depending on the size of your organization as a business, as a company, you're gonna need different things at different times. And there can be things that we say are a best practice for how you organize your infrastructure repository that I would say is maybe an anti-pattern if you're gonna be you know, a Disney scale enterprise adopting these strategies. So what our opinion is on this is that you need a monorepo for your foundation because your foundation is your root and you always need a root to some degree. You, you generally don't wanna have 200 roots spread all over the place because it's difficult to manage. So our opinion is you need a root with your foundational infrastructure that is maybe how you manage your accounts, how you manage your organizations, how you manage your service control policies and your organizational cloud trails, how you manage security hub and guard duty and things like that. Then with your foundation in place, you can start thinking about how do we want to enable infrastructure for teams and services. And those teams and services, it might make more sense to allow them to manage their own Terraform code, their, their own infrastructure as code. And then it becomes a question of, well, should they have a, their own monorepo? Or should each service have its own uh, subfolder, for example, with infrastructure code? And we've implemented both for customers. Most recently, we've done this pattern where um, a team will have, like a data analytics team, will have their own infrastructure repository with, their, with only the infrastructure code that is relevant to that team. For example, that data analytics team might care about Airflow, Kinesis, Air, and uh, Glue, and uh, Redshift, and EMR. Well, you would put all of that business logic, all of that configuration in a, a analytics monorepo. What I think is a dangerous trap is saying that you have to go one way or another. And I think it's also a dangerous trap saying, well, if you have 500 
different uh, GitHub repositories and you're going to have Terraform code sprawled across all 500 of those repos, that also becomes a uh, new kind of management challenge. So did I, did that answer your question? Yes, yes, definitely. Okay. Okay, um, so the other part thing I'd like to highlight with all of this, um, and it, it's something I, I frequently tell uh, people when we're on the phone with them and selling Cloud Posse services is, you know, it, it's all fine and dandy when you have your infrastructure defined as code, you feel great when your repository has a wealth of infrastructure code in there, but you have no idea what your tech debt is, your liabilities and, and your deployability at any given time. You don't know what the state of that. And that's why you need another layer then on top of everything that you manage here. So that's where Cloud Posse has gravitated towards an open to a um, paid service called Spacelift. And Spacelift uh, gives us that visibility into the state of our infrastructure. Uh, so everything that uh, goes into main we can see it at a glance in Spacelift. So with Spacelift, I'm gonna filter this to folders and states. So here you can see uh, the state of our infrastructure uh, broken down into those organizational units, uh, core and plat that you saw in the repo by region, global resources and regional resources and by uh, account. So if we drill into staging, we can see the resources deployed in staging. And by state, we can see that there's uh, a total of 27 resources deployed to this environment of which uh, one is pending changes, 23 are healthy and three changes were actually skipped. This is like if you're familiar with accounting software, having a double entry accounting uh, where you, know, you see every transaction come into your checking account, you wanna have it mapped to something else within the business, one of your other expense accounts and so forth. So uh, that's what we get with Spacelift. Um, I think you could try and do something with Atlantis and other software, but I don't think it'll be as easy. All right, um, any more questions on that? Let's see the Zoom chat. How do you handle like your backend state file management for all this? That's a good question. So Terraform state backends um, have historically been one of the more painful areas of getting started with Terraform. Uh, tools like TerraGrunt automatically generate that state backend for you. I always found that kind of awkward though, because, hey, we're managing our infrastructure's code, yet this other tool is not following that. It's just creating that bucket for you. So we've taken this other approach where we have a Terraform module that provisions the Terraform state backend. And then we have a little bit of rough edge there where we have to create that backend without a state backend and then import the state into the state backend. So it's a little bit recursive there, but here's the deal with that. It's a cold start problem. It's a problem you have one time with one state bucket. Now we support ACE architecture, which can have multiple Terraform state backends. And guess what? The state of the state backend buckets are all in that one root state. So it's only thing you have to do one time in the generation of your organization on AWS. And then you can start creating Terraform state backends all day long, however many you want in any account in any flavor. What gets tricky with your Terraform state backend architecture is two things. How are you managing your IAM roles to restrict access to those buckets, to who needs it? And then how are you uh, deciding on splitting those buckets across your accounts? So are you going to have a convention where, hey, we're just going to have one Terraform state backend per account, or we're going to have one per account per service, or we're going to have uh, one for production and one for non-production? And then based on whatever strategy you pick, if you depend on Terraform remote state, <laughs> have fun because you're gonna have to do all these calculations uh, you know, the hard way by knowing which uh, state backend to look at that. Now, if you're using our module ecosystem, we've solved that 
we have, because you're using YAML stack configurations, Terraf every Terraform module knows about every other Terraform, every Terraform root module knows about every other Terraform root module and where it's deployed and how it's configured and where its state backend is. So when you use the Cloud Posse ecosystem of root modules, um, state management becomes very easy. Thanks. Yeah, sure thing. Did I answer the question? Um, how, how we manage state backends or? Yeah, you did. Uh, I mean, I guess to elaborate a little more on the question is like in your bucket, what does your bucket like architecture look like for your mm. staging? That's, that's kind of what, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Hold on. Um, here is what that looks like. Um, where, oh, wait, this is, yeah, so I think we had a different document I was thinking of, um, but this kind of shows it here too. So what we'll have is um, one bucket with a folder per root module, and then each root module then have a environment or AMP, AKA AWS work, uh, uh, Terraform workspace, and then the Terraform state backend within that workspace. Now there's all this FUD, all this fear, uncertainty, and doubt about should I use Terraform workspaces and they're evil and this circular references and how you they, it's just the worst thing ever. And yet that's all we use for years and it's been no problem whatsoever because it all comes down to your tooling. And you can very easily shoot yourself in the foot with Terraform with things worse than running Terraform workspace the wrong way. So uh, in the end, in the end, anybody doing Terraform at scale, anybody doing anything meaningful at a large scale with Terraform, you have some tooling. You might have some bash scripts, you might have some make files, you might be using Terragrunt, you might be using all of the above, you might be using Atmos, which is our tool that we use for this. And that tooling is what's responsible for making sure you have the right workspaces selected. So that was me on my soapbox because it's come up recently. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good um, that's a good thing because I use Terraform Cloud and everything's workspace based in Terraform Cloud. You have it, to have a workspace, yeah. It is um, actually it is and it isn't. So <laughs> so to be clear, when Terraform uh, Cloud came out, they're using workspaces. I thought, yay, it's vindication for using workspaces, except for Terraform Cloud workspaces are not Terraform open source CLI workspaces. No, they're very uh, different. Yeah, they're very much different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, I'll take it as a win either way because we use workspaces. <laughs> so. All righty. Um, any, any other questions on how we manage the uh, Terraform state backend and what it looks like uh, in the buckets? All right. Oh, one other key thing here, and I think it's always overlooked um, uh, unless you've thought about it, is your Terraform state backends. And if you are taking a multi-region DR approach, uh, think uh, think about what that means in terms of what region is your primary region for your Terraform state. Um, and I think it wouldn't be a bad idea if uh, you created a Terraform state backend at a minimum per region that you operate in, so that uh, you know it's very clear where where your uh, state is. Because the worst that would happen is your all your state is in US East one, and your whole purpose for being in US East 2 or US West 1 was in the event that US East 1 went down and then US East 1 went down for some period of time and S3 is unavailable and you know <laughs> you can't manage your Terraform resources because all the states locked up in that one region that's down. All right, let's see, any more questions here in the Zoom chat? Uh, Mike uh, Martin posts about 23 hours ago, Eric posted on his LinkedIn, couple this with curl provider to automate one-off APIs that lack Terraform support. Um, <laughs> well, okay, in the interest of full disclosure, we are not using this pattern 
I'm just saying I'm painting a picture on how these two things become useful. So the first thing was a generic Terraform provider for curl or a, or a Terraform provider to do generic requests, HTTP requests with curl. So now we know we can construct any HTTP request more or less uh, and do that in Terraform. Thing is, there's most things that you want to talk to need a API token. Many things use uh, OIDC. So using the OIDC uh, provider, you can now generate the request token that you need to make that request with the Terraform provider for curl to automate that one-off API. And I, I, that's why I'm calling it one-off. I'm not saying, hey, this is the best things in sliced bread. We don't need to use the Terraform AWS provider anymore or something like that. There is this one thing you might need to do with Terraform to uh, get around some edge case you ran into. And rather than implement yet another weekend project Terraform provider, because that's what half the Terraform providers are, uh, you can maybe combine two other Terraform providers to make that same request. I think an example of this might be a uh, request to, well, okay, so I don't think uh, you can do GitHub, uh, I don't think you can do OIDC requests um, uh, workflow with uh, AWS APIs, um, but like a one-off situation, making a one-off request with the curl provider would be you need to call the AWS API to stop a service. So Terraform isn't responsible for stopping and starting services. All it cares about is create, update, read, and destroy operations, not stop and start operations. So typically people would just say, hey, I'm just gonna use the shell provider and call the AWS client directly. Well, maybe you could also now use a curl provider to make a lower level request um, to that same service uh, using native Terraform without depending on CLI commands. <laughs> we are not using this pattern anywhere yet. I just want to make sure people are aware that you could, uh, this is something if you ran into these problems, look into it. Yeah, like the yeah, last example you provided where Terraform isn't responsible for starting or stopping, but you could use it to do such a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, Eric, that you, you can in fact um, call the AWS, See uh, the AWS APIs um, with a GitHub OADC token. If you can, if you can get that token, you can exchange it for um, for temporary AWS credentials, and then you oh. can do whatever you want with that. Right, huh. because that's how the GitHub OADC stuff works. Duh. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for connecting the dots for me. Yeah. Are you guys integrated between Spacelift and uh, GitHub OADC? That's an interesting it? one. So right now we so we have some GitHub action. We have used GitHub actions to trigger deployments in Spacelift. Uh, that works well, but the problem is we need to have this token in GitHub actions that can deploy a stack in Spacelift. And that's a hard-coded token that uh, you know would need to be manually rotated. I haven't seen, I haven't looked into it. Uh, does, um, does, is there some way that you can have Spacelift trust the GitHub OIDC and then uh, do short-lived credentials to trigger jobs in Spacelift? I haven't seen that, but I'd be curious to ask them. I thought it was some new functionality that just popped up. I haven't even been able to look at it. I don't know, Matt's me in the face. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how, so the, the way that, so j just to talk through the flow, the way that, that GitHub OIDC works is that the GitHub the GitHub service trusts its own workflows that are running to to and it issues them an OIDC token based on the fact that it controls the spin up of those things so it it knows like mm -hmm. when a new job starts and it issues it a token and then it's that token that you can call the AWS SDS yeah, okay. and point with to be able to yeah. get to be able to exchange that for temporary AWS credentials. I don't know how in this case, GitHub would trust Spacelift in the first place to be able to issue Spacelift the OIDC token, because usually in order to do that for a service, there's a password flow. Like you would have to, yeah. somehow you'd usually have to log in. It's not a machine-based flow yeah. like like OAuth is. It's uh, It actually has a username and password and they're just hijacking it 
um, because they control both the client and the server in the GitHub um, actions workflow. That makes sense to me. So that it it, it just wouldn't be possible in that case. Um, because yeah, they can, unless like they have say, some other thing, you know, that yeah. they're doing. Okay. All right, let me uh, check the office hours channel here. Uh, see if there's anything posted there. Oh, there's the uh, post on the Fargate outage in the office hours channel. And scrolling up here, I see Mazin asking question. I'm trying to import a Google project IM policy that looks like this. Based on the documentation, it should be imported like this. However, when, when I use this one followed by a Terraform plan, let me share my screen. It shows the role being deleted instead. I'm not sure if it's related to importing the resources or if there's a better way to import. Did did um? Is it also being created? There are changes that require a post. Uh, sorry, I didn't hear Eric. Oh, what was that? I asked if it was also being created. There are changes that require destruction and creation. Fun part that happened yep. is. Every time I run Terraform apply, a different thing happened. And I have no idea what does that even mean. But uh, literally, if uh, like for this, for this GCP project, I have like five different roles. And suddenly one is being deleted. Uh, second time, another one is created. Third time I run Terraform apply, um, it's being deleted again. And, Do you have a backend uh, set up? Do you have a remote backend configured? No, it's uh, no, a setup, and uh, no one else is uh, touching right. the project, which is funny. Are you are you using count by any chance in your resources, like count equals four or something like that? And you're iterating over that? Uh, no, no, no. Just okay. a plain uh, code that looks uh, that is generated that, that looks similar to this one. Hmm. It looks like it's a bug on GCP, uh, like. Uh, like Google provider. project, I am, yeah, the provider, but yeah. I have no idea if someone else have a better experience on, on uh, terraforming IAM roles on Google. <laughs> yeah, I have, I don't have a lot in, in Google, but I, what I can tell you is in, in AWS, they had a problem for a while where the JSON, mm -hmm. the JSON wasn't, that, that comes back when it does the read out of the API wasn't mm. consistently coming back in the same order. So it actually thought that like it needed to delete and then recreate the same the same roles for a number of times. Mm. And they finally fixed that bug not too long ago. I wonder if Google doesn't have a similar issue. Wow, this is exactly almost almost exactly what is happening here. And yeah. uh, because I import it and then it tells me that, hey, it's different from what your uh, what you're uh, applying. So maybe this is yeah. the same uh, behavior, which is really funny. If you, uh, if you want to verify that you can, you can probably turn on, um, you know, TF underscore log equals trace and actually look at the data and you'll, you'll actually see the API calls that are being made to, to the Google APIs and the results that come back. And you can compare those if you run it several times, see if you get different ordering and then see mm -hmm. if that in fact corresponds to that. And then if it is just open up a bug on the provider and, mm -hmm. and tell them like, hey, here's what the problem is. Perfect. I think uh, that's the way that I would be doing. Thank you very much, Matt. Yeah, no problem. So one of the questions uh, that was asked in office hours uh, earlier this week, so I didn't see it, was just, um, you know, this person's considering using AWS code ar artifact, love it or hate it. Uh, we're considering it for PIP. I uh, would, uh, would love to, you know, understand if there are any weird edge, case, edge cases. Previously, they've used uh, Nexus Artifactory and run into some problems there. So 
My, I guess it's probably fine for PIP. My biggest complaint is it doesn't support some of the artifact types we've wanted to use. So that's why we don't use artifact or code artifact or like uh, date. I think it doesn't support like Debian packages and RPM packages. I was just trying to validate, verify that because my, my recollection could be wrong. Yeah, my, mine was really dated and I was actually doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been my frustration also like with GitHub packages, like I would love to use GitHub packages, but we can't use it for the packages that we distribute. And they are very common packages in my mind, like RPM packages and Debian packages. Yeah, and uh, npm, pi 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 maven, and nuget. That's it. Mm. Yeah. This all makes me want to ask you how you manage version versions across everything, all the dependencies. You know, you have crap loads of stacks of different versions of Terraform and different versions of providers and modules. How, please, how do you manage that? You guys have a lot more than we do. Looking for um, yeah. yeah, so the problem <laughs> set reduces a little bit when you think about uh, the number of tools that you really need to worry about pinning the versions on. And that's why what we did was about I don't know, maybe it's three or four years. No, it's like, yeah, three years ago, maybe. We realized that more and more we were becoming a package, just like an OS distribution almost with GeoDesic. Hmm. And, and one of the biggest problems with conventional operating systems is that they don't support concurrent installations of uh, binaries or like different versions of software. Um, obviously there's... Um, Somebody help me. What's the new cool kit on the block that everyone's talking about for the OS where it, it literally sandboxes everything that you install, um, three-letter acronym or something. Anyways, um, but for NPM and those packages, you can't do that. So what we did was we uh, distribute our own versions of oh, Terraform. Did you mean, did you mean Nix? Nix OS. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's yeah. not a problem you have with Nix OS, but it is a problem you have with every other um, um, uh, OS out there that I know of. So what we do is we come up, we, we do two things. We create a base package, which is always the latest of some uh, series. And we don't do that for everything. We do it where it matters. Terraform, it matters, right? Major differences between Terraform versions and not backward compatible. And then we create a package for every, um, uh, for every other version. Now, in this case for Terraform 1, Terraform has come out and promised backwards compatibility. So that's why we aren't being as surgical about pinning this way as we were previously. And we do the same thing with kubectl, um, uh, uh, providing a, uh, an installable package that way. So when we do this, we can now use the uh, established convention of um, Alternatives, which is an OS, uh, which is something I think Debian introduced, but it's supported by the major operating systems now. So uh, dpackage alternatives. So dpackage alternatives allows you to have multiple alternatives for the same package, and then you can select which one of those you want to use. Hmm. And that's what we're using. Now, I went this way because I like to think of myself as an old school uh, Linux kind of guy. And I just want to use like the, the fundamentals that Linux provides. Then you have uh, some other alternatives that are probably a lot friendlier to use, which are things like uh, all your uh, env managers, uh, env environment managers that they have out there. Um, try, uh, drawing a blank on what the, the most ASDF being one of the most popular ones. Are you familiar with ASDF? Yeah, there's a few things out there. That's like a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, exactly. It's like a framework for doing this. And then it supports ways of switching between everything. So our problem 
is a little bit reduced. So what we so we had this problem very early on as a consulting company working with you know multiple concurrent engagements and customers at different versions of Terraform and Kubernetes or not Kubernetes and so forth, and we didn't want to have to have that problem. So that is why that was the original impetus for creating Geodesic. So Geodesic is this Docker image, and it's a base image. So you inherit from this base image, and now you have an interactive shell for your environment. And you can create as many of those shells as you want. It's kind of like if you were using back in the day, uh, HashiCorp's other tool for managing environments with virtual machines, somebody. Vagrant. Yeah. Vagrant, yes, thank you. It's like a Vagrant approach, but Vagrant is pretty heavy handed, uh, build, spinning up VMs while using uh, Docker uh, images for projects that need pin tooling is a pretty lightweight solution. For most of our customers, that works out that you only need one UDC container for uh, you know, the tool set. However, uh, we do have one customer that, that uh, took this to the next level where they have uh, multiple AWS organizations and then like for each AWS organization, they manage a, a separate toolbox image. So the toolbox image is our predominant recommendation for how you manage all those different versions. Yeah, and, it, and I think just to take this all the way down the path in, in the Atmos stack configs that we have there, you have the ability in metadata to set the version of Terraform that you want to use for a particular stack. So, and Atmos will do the right thing and swap itself to those those different um, versions of Terraform when it's provide when it's planning or applying that that particular stack um, there yeah there you go yeah so exactly this is what we're talking about is that space lift has this concept of a version uh, for a stack and uh, what they call a stack is what we call an instantiation of a component and you can specify yeah. the version so, so I was actually talking about line seven, though, that okay. even without space lift, uh, if you run, if you're running this just with Atmos, you can, you can have different versions of Terraform for different stacks. And then that way you also, I wouldn't say like, I would encourage you to go do this, but it really helps in a migration scenario. Like when you're upgrading, you want to get like, move from 0.13 to you know 1.1 or whatever you don't have to do that all at once and update like your entire file and get it all working you can you can do it like one stack at a time um, you know pretty easily through you know through through that migration process so it's uh, it's very helpful that way yeah my my config exposes pretty much the same thing I you know for all my multi stacks that are applying the same module across uh, multiple stacks. They uh, they get the same config, um, and uh, shit. I just totally forgot what I was saying. It happens to the best of us. <laughs> yeah, Terraform versions, how we set them, how you do it in your config. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so you know, it's a YAML file for each multi-stack with the default, and you can just change it in the default, and then override it in the specific. Yeah. Um, and then when that's done, you just change the default and roll it on through. Yeah. Um, there are also some tools that will inspect modules and go out and look for like latest versions of dependencies and stuff like that. I think there's probably a pre-commit or an easy one to write for that. Um, at least I want to be able to track, you know, all these things and uh, instead of I, I'd like to be proactive on this instead of going to the EKS console and having them taking up real estate, telling me that I have plugins that are add-ons that need upgrading. There's a lot of axes to this problem. Yes, there's a lot of axes to this problem, which makes it so difficult. Yeah, there's like you mentioned, like and then the tools within your cluster and whatnot. So I don't think there's if a. You're, I was just gonna say, depend about does a pretty good job across yeah. a whole bunch of different languages, including Terraform of letting you know when you're out of date on, on your dependencies. That's that's really good. We actually use that allocating database. Yeah. And RenovateBot uh, as alternatively. I don't, does anyone know, with Dependabot, with Dependabot, can you come up with custom expressions to update arbitrary files? You can? 
Yeah, there's All right, we went way over today. Thank you, everyone, for uh, hanging out there, uh, giving us 10 extra minutes of your day. I'm going to wrap up office hours now. We'll continue next week uh, where we left off. If you haven't yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, head over to youtube.com slash cloudposse. Again, youtube.com slash cloudposse and subscribe. I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Go to linkedin.com slash in slash Osterman. Again, that's linkedin.com slash in slash Osterman. And if you are interested in working with Cloud Posse, it's very easy. Uh, go to cloudposse.com slash quiz and um, you know, book a meeting with me and see if we are a fit for your business and helping you take it to the next level with infrastructure as code and automation. So talk to you all later. Adios. All right, Thanks. guys. Have a good one. You too. You too.